I'm going to take a little bit of a survey. You don't have to raise your hands, but it is a little bit helpful for me. How many of you are the kind of people, uh, when you go into a place like maybe Target or Walmart or Home Depot, the kind of place that just has a bank of registers, and you've just stopped in to get one or two items, and as you're walking to check out, the first thing you intuitively do is you start eyeing out all of them to find which is the small, the shortest line, and even if it's all the way over there, you start making, a, a, you aren't walking to it, but as you're walking to it, you notice other people are doing the same thing. They start going, and that line gets longer, so you turn around to the line you were originally at that that line has gotten longer, and then you start getting anxious about which line you're going to get into, right? That happens. That's not just me. How many of you, when you finally get to the, front of the cash register, you get irritated because the person in front of you pulled out a checkbook of all things, and then they go through that whole process. What's the date again? Do you have a pen? And then they try to shove the little carbon. I know some of you use checkbooks. You're getting mad right now. But then you're shoving that carbon paper to write on it, and you're just like, I'll just pay for it for you. Let's get going here. Some of you like that? Yeah, some of you like that. Or maybe... You're that person, that maybe you're with your family, you're going to the movies, you're, you're going to eat out, or maybe you're at the mall, and even though there's like 30 parking spots back here, you're looking for the one closest to the entrance. You guys do that, and you, you, will, you will drive around looking for the perfect spot, and some of you more creepy ones, you actually go slow and follow people, right? <laughs> and then they look back at you, and you act like you're not following, you're like, oh yeah, just driving here, right? Yeah, I mean, my wife will even say, there's one, there's another. Even my kids will say, Dad, there's one, there's one. I'll tell them, stop. This is as close as men get to hunting and gathering these days, so just (laughs) let us do our thing, right? Or maybe you've had this experience, you're sitting on the computer, and you're on Amazon because you need to get something, and and you put it in your checkout cart, and it's it's not the two-day delivery, and you go, this will take forever to get here, I'm not buying this, and you stop. All these are examples of impatience. Impatience. It seems like everything in our culture is breeding a society of impatience. Now, don't get me wrong. I, like anyone else, love the one-click buying thing. And like on the Amazon app, now you just swipe and you've bought it and it sends its way to you. But the downside of all of this instant gratification is that we are creating a, a society, a culture, where we have no tolerance for things that make us wait. We have no ability to actually wait for things. Now, in our passage this morning, it's pretty clear what James wants to talk about. You may have even picked it up yourself because he mentions it six times in five verses. Patience, endurance. It's really fitting that James would close his epistle talking about patience this way. And think about it, for these original readers, If you're going through difficulty and trial, if you're learning to be obedient to God's Word, if you're seeking wisdom, if you live in constant struggle, what could be more necessary in your life than to be able to be patient? Especially on the heels of what James wrote to us last week, Speaking about living in light of eternity, what attribute could be more important for that than learning to be patient? But it seems like everything around us in our culture is just fighting against that reality, doesn't it? But here's the kicker. Even though we do things that are very impatient all the time, every one of us in this room knows that the things that really matter in life 
are, are, not, are not one-click anything. The things that really have substance, the, the infrastructure that really holds our lives together, the relationships that are meaningful, the experiences that matter, take time. They're not instant anything. A, a culture that, that doesn't know patience is a culture that's going to be really hard on marriages. A culture that doesn't know patience is going to be a culture where parenthood is seen like an inconvenience or a cramp into someone's lifestyle. A culture that doesn't know patience is going to be a culture where individuals are, are constantly anxious and unsettled. A culture that doesn't know patience is going to be a culture where community is almost impossible to find. A culture that doesn't know patience is going to be a culture of, of emoting and aggression, not understanding and connecting. So we're, we're in a real dilemma because on the one hand, everything in our culture drives us, feeds us, makes us impatient. But on the other hand, we know patience is the ingredient for the things that matter. So, so we have a dilemma. What do we do? Well, we do what we normally do. We go to the Bible because the Bible provides us the answers for these things. The Bible in our passage this morning, it tells us what patience is. It, it talks about how do we exercise patience, and almost more, more importantly, it talks about how do we develop and grow in patience. So that's the way our passage is broken down. What is patience? How do we exercise patience? And how do we develop patience? Let's look at them one at a time. James opens with a command to be patient. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Now, James's command for patience flows directly from what he's exactly been teaching last week in the previous section that we looked at. These people, his readers, they can be patient they can endure because, remember, their cries have gone up to God and He hears them. They can be patient. They can endure because there is a coming day of reconciliation and reckoning. You remember those from verses 4 and verses 5 last week. So they can be people of patience and endure injustice and suffering because God hears them and God is doing something about it. I mean, this just shows James's brilliant pastoral insight and instincts. Isn't it true that in our times of difficulty, in our times of suffering, it's at those times we are tempted to feel like God has forgotten about us, that, that God is just, He's just checked out, that, he, that He's not involved in the affairs of our life, that He doesn't notice you, that He doesn't understand what you're going through. I love that James understands that that's where our hearts go in the midst of our struggles and trials, and he says, look, God notices, God will change things. We don't need to be the kinds of people that desperately struggle to take matters into our own hands to bring about the world we want. Justice will be done, wrongs will be right. Even now, James says, it is anticipated and it is coming quickly. Life's difficulties, whether they're your own or they're someone you love, always tempts us to doubt the very faithfulness and goodness of God, don't they? How often have you heard somebody say, or maybe you've said it yourself, if God is good, if God is real, then why this? 
It's because our struggles and difficulties tempt us to doubt God. We're always tempted to doubt God when the difficulties come, even though the Scriptures constantly proclaim otherwise, even though our own personal experiences uh, testify to the contrary, that our difficulties sometimes are the most formative aspects of our lives. But in times of struggle, in times of trial, those speak so much louder than our beliefs. Helen Keller knew difficulty. Helen Keller was born in 1880, and by 19 months of age, she became both blind and deaf. They believe some kind of disease, possibly meningitis or something, struck her blind and deaf. Later in her life, if you're familiar with Helen Keller's story, she became well-known in literature. She was a writer, a speaker. She's quoted as saying, we could never learn to be brave, and we could certainly never learn to be patient if there were only joy in this world. And James says, be patient because God hears your cries. Be patient because there's a day of reckoning when all wrongs will be made right. The word here, patience, comes from the Greek word uh, makrothumia. It's a combination of two words in Greek. Macro, that might sound familiar to you, big, large, or long, and thumia, anger, or rage, or wrath. It's often translated in our Bibles, long-suffering. It's being able to go long in the face of anger. It's being able to, to go long in the face of suffering, or disappointment, or delayed desires, The other word James uses here, he happens to use it twice in verse 11 for steadfast, is hupomeno. It means to be someone who remains in place, someone who doesn't give their ground, someone who's not going to be changed from a course of action or belief regardless of the opposition. It means to be steadfast, to hold fast, to believe even when things are dissatisfying and you're not getting what you want to have happen not giving up your post. It's sometimes used in military writings in Greek Greek antiquity of soldiers in the face of overwhelming odds, even the face of death, wouldn't give up their post. They would be steadfast, even if things were not going the way they wanted them to. Now, to be clear though, let's not confuse what James is saying by patience with this idea of stoicism. Sometimes as Christians, we get the sense that uh, to, to, to struggle, to, to acknowledge the existential agony or pain of this is not, is not pleasing to God. So I, I'm just going to deal with this. I'm going to be patient. I'm just going to you know, pull myself up by the moral bootstraps and suck it up because that's what Christians do. Okay, that, that, that's not what James is talking about. That, that's more akin to stoicism as if these things don't matter. They do. Notice verse 11. James says, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast, who hold their ground. In the New Testament, patience, the kind of which James is talking about, is almost always linked to peace, joy. In Galatians 5, uh, 22 and following, when Paul's talking about the fruit of the Spirit, he's saying it is patience. It's this macrothumia, but it's also joy. In Colossians, Colossians 1.11, both patience and steadfastness in our passage are linked, tied directly to joy. How could you be patient in the face of so much wrongs unless there was a deep abiding joy fueling that? You'd only become bitter. 
So what James is saying is that there's this patience, there's this steadfastness, but it comes from a wellspring of joy, and he explains why that is. The last phrase in our passage this morning, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful, that, that passage, that phrase is explanatory. Why are those who are patient blessed? God is compassionate and merciful. We don't, you don't, we don't use the word how that way anymore. Um, it's been kind of taken over by the word because. How are those who are uh, b- b- steadfast, blessed? How the Lord is compassionate and merciful is how they would say it. We would say because the Lord is compassionate and merciful, they're blessed when they're steadfast, when they're patient. So the answer to our first question, what is patience according to James here? Patience is a kind of uh, fueled by the fruit of the Spirit, a graciousness and steadiness in the face of delayed gratification. And I want to use it that way because that's a term we're familiar with oftentimes, delayed gratification. But that's, that's, it's so much more than just delayed gratification. It's also when the gratification you want is the hopes and dreams you've planned for are dashed. That's delayed gratification. Patience is steadiness and graciousness in the face of that. To take a slightly different perspective on it, the Oxford scholar C.S. Lewis was asked this question, why do the righteous have to suffer? Why not, Lewis replied, they're the only ones who can take it. That's because believers have a Godward perspective and an eternal view of what's going on that puts in context and makes sense of the nonsense of this world, without which, without that Godward perspective, without that eternal perspective, we only have this life, and if our hopes and dreams of this life are dashed, we have nothing. But James says it is not about this life. Remember last week, there's so much more out there, and a day of reckoning when everything is made right again is coming quickly, very soon. But believers have this perspective. They have the resources necessary to endure. You know, as as I'm studying this, I couldn't think, help but think of people in our own congregation. One family in particular, who, as it was about maybe six weeks ago, it was a Sunday like any other Sunday, a Sunday like today, except that Sunday they found out that their nine-year-old had stage four cancer. Completely caught them off guard. This was, came out of the blue but it was a Sunday like any other Sunday. And I remember having the privilege about six weeks ago, five weeks ago, sitting with them in the hospital with their son. And oftentimes when you go to visit people in a hospital, you are filled with how am I going to encourage? What am I possibly going to say in this situation? What good can come of this? And as equally as I am the one giving them my faith to hold on to, they give me their faith and I'm encouraged. As I sat there speaking to this father, recognizing I am seeing displayed in vivid color patience and steadfastness. I remember saying to this father, I said, you know, this this tragedy that God is working in the midst may have caught you off guard, but it did not catch you unprepared. And and by that I mean that he and his wife had sunk their roots deep into the Christian faith and had the resources to know that even in the midst of this situation, they had a God that was involved and there. And it wasn't a stoic, I'm going to tuck my head down and get through it. It was, we don't understand what's going on, but we can trust our Lord. 
They have the resources to do it. Patience is holding the course, suffering long in the face of delayed gratification, of struggles of life. You know, the opposite of that is what? The opposite of that is just turn on the news, irritability, grumbling, complaining, getting angry, having a tantrum, bursts of microaggression. That's the opposite. James says, but this is patience in general. But then James talks about exercising this kind of patience in three specific ways. So how do we exercise patience? James gives us three ways specifically. We exercise patience theologically, we exercise patience practically, and we exercise patience relationally. Number one, we exercise patience theologically. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Number one, we're patient with God. You trust Him to do as He says He will. You're patient with Him. You trust that He hears your cries, verse 4 from last week. You trust that He's going to do something about it, verse 5 from last week. Think about it. If you don't trust Him, you will be impatient with Him. I mean, these two go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. The more you trust Him, the more patient a person you will be because you recognize God's got it taken care of. You don't need to be the one fighting to make things happen, trying to make it all work in your own strength. You get it. God's got it taken care of. He's going to bring it to pass. The more you trust Him, the more you're patient with Him, and the more patient a person you will be yourselves. The less you trust Him, the less of a patient person you will be as well, because in your own world, whatever you might say with your lips, you are functionally on your own. And so you don't have the patience to wait because you've got to take care of yourself in this world because no one else is. But the more you trust Him, the more patient you will be, and the less you trust Him, the less patient you will be. In other words, this patience with God, this theological patience, is the foundation for all other kinds of patience. And the more you have of that, the more patient a person you'll be. And the less you have of it, the less patient person you will be. And James roots our patience, in this passage at least ultimately, in our trust in God in His coming. Notice twice when He gives the command to be patient. He ties it directly to the coming of Christ. Uh, Look at verse 7, be sober therefore until the coming of the Lord. Be patient therefore until the coming of the Lord. Verse 8, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. James is rooting our ability to be patient, trusting that God is coming again. You know, Paul in Romans chapter 13, you don't need to turn there, I'll have it on the screens behind me. He makes a similar connection. Knowledge about our salvation, both in this, the present dimension and the future dimension, leads to a transformed lifestyle. This is what he writes in Romans chapter 13. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, and here's his concluding statement. So then, as a result, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. So theologically, we're patient with God because we trust God. We trust God because God is faithful constantly. By the way, James makes that exact point here, which is why he points to this example of the farmer and the rains. Notice that in verse 7. 
See, as, a, as an example of patience, how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and later rains. You know, every time that phrase, the early and later rains, uh, appear in the Old Testament, it's in direct correlation affirming the faithfulness of God. Keep in mind, in the Old Testament, they were by and large an agrarian culture. And so they lived and died by the, the, the rains for the crops. We see it first in Deuteronomy 13, verse, Deuteronomy 11, verse 13, where he's talking about, if you obey my commands, then my faithfulness to you will always be there, and you'll see it in the early and late rain. So we see it in Deuteronomy. Here we go, 11, 14. He will give you the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain. Why? That you may gather in your grain and your wine and your olive oil. We see it again in Jeremiah 5, 24. They do not say in their hearts, let us fear the Lord our God who gives us the rain in its season, the autumn rain and the spring rain, referring to the early and latter rains. Again, in Joel 2.23, be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication, the early and the later rain as before. And again, this appears in Hosea and Zechariah, but you get the point. God's faithfulness remains. Because we exercise patience theologically, because God is faithful, we can exercise patience practically. And this is how James moves on. We exercise patience practically. And James, James here gives us three examples of this kind of exercising of patience. The farmer, the prophets, and Job. Now the farmer speaks of just the practical realities of exercising patience. That there are things to be done while we are waiting for God. Think about this. Farmers cannot do anything to actually make the crops grow, right? They, they, can't, they can't yell at the dirt and that will make the crops grow faster. They cannot do actually anything to make that happen, but they can prepare. They can sharpen their tools. They can cultivate the soil so that the conditions are favorable. They can get their animals ready for the harvest. There are things to be doing. Being patient does not mean doing nothing. It means doing the right thing at the right time and trusting God for the results. Very important. Farmers, when you think of uh, impatient, you're not thinking of farmers. You're thinking of New York cabbies or you're thinking of people like us at the malls or whatever, right? Farmers are the picture of patience. Being patient doesn't mean you absolutely do nothing. You just do the right things at the right times, trusting God for the results. So you want a family member or one of your, your children to know the Lord. That's great. But you know what? Yelling at them to go to church, yelling at them to read your Bible, to read the Bible, yelling at them to believe will not help them become Christians any more than a farmer yelling at the dirt is going to make the crops grow. You want God to flourish you at the office. You've been there a while. You need a promotion. You, 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 are, you are earning of it. That's great. But slacking off because you think the boss doesn't notice is not going to help you any more than a farmer who doesn't sharpen their to to uh, tools to toil the till the soil. That was a mouth one there. I can get that one out. There are things to be done. You're in a bad financial situation. You need God to help you out. That's great. But then you exercise biblical wisdom. You put your priorities right. You spend and save according to wisdom, not according to who's running the latest sale. 
being patient doesn't mean you do nothing. It means you do the right things in the right time and trust God for the results. Biblical patience is understanding that God works out all these things over time, just like the farmer. But James also knowing that his readers are going through uh, particular struggles. If you've been in our study of James, you know they are suffering for many reasons. So he particularly wants to talk about patience in the face of suffering. And James is talking about the real kinds of losses and grieves in their lives, not like our world of, you know, basically first world problems, right? Like, oh, I got to endure this old iPhone. I can't update it because the new apps is too old, right? Or kind of the thing where you get one Chick-fil-A dipping sauce with your 20 nuggets. That's not suffering. That's just modern day inconveniences. James is saying, how do we suffer or how do we exercise patience in light of suffering? And the two examples he gives us are who? The prophet's and Job, right? We see that in, in verse 10 and in the first half of 11. As an example of suffering and patience, take the prophets, brothers, who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Now, James doesn't mention specific prophets, but really you can just pick any one of them. Look at Jeremiah, who was faithfully proclaiming the message of the Lord for four decades. Had one convert, his faithful scribe, Baruch, and no one else would listen to him until they, they would throw him in jail. But for four decades, he preached without a single convert. What about Hosea, who was faithful to God's call in his life, even though his wife was unfaithful to him? Time and time and time again. But Hosea continued on with the ministry God gave him. Daniel, taken from his homeland as a young boy, thrown to lions as a grown man, but always faithful to represent the Lord no matter the pressure or the penalty. Every time in every one of these situations and any more of the prophets you could choose, look at Hebrews chapter 11, they kept at the call of God in their lives. Friends, regardless of the trial, they did not give ground. They did not give up. They suffered long. They held their post. They were patient. They were steadfast. Job as well. If you're familiar with Job, yes, he did get mad. Yes, he, he, he argued with God. He even cursed the day of his birth. But in the end, he was faithful and knew that his God was faithful. So what's the takeaway? What is the takeaway that James is, is, is attaching to suffering and our patience to the prophets and Job? Here's, just, here's it. The same pattern. They just weren't self-absorbed. None of the prophets, Job, they didn't become self-absorbed in their own suffering. You suffer, but you do what God has called you to do. That's what it means to endure from a biblical perspective. What, what happens when people suffer? If you know a lot of people and you watch a lot of people suffering, what tends to happen when people suffer? The size of their world becomes what? The size of their world. And their whole lives are defined by the suffering and everything goes inward and their lives orbit around the star of their trial or their difficulty or the dilemma at hand. And then they become, uh, it's just all about them, prayer requests about their suffering and trials. Every conversation about their suffering and trials, it becomes so insular. It's as if they've functionally forgotten that God exists because they're on their own and God doesn't see, nor does God hear, nor does God have a plan. And it's all, they've become so self-grown. But the prophets didn't do that. Job didn't do that. Regardless of the suffering, 
They knew there was more at stake than their own wants and desires, and so they endured. So we endure, we exercise patience theologically because that's the foundation. When we're patient with God because we trust Him, we can be patient in any situation. We're patient practically in the just reality, practical affairs of our lives, but particularly in our suffering because we know God hears and God acts, but we're also patient relationally. Look at verse 9, he says, do not grumble against one another. We just, we don't take our frustrations out on one another. See, our culture is just really odd. We're good with first gear. We're not good. We have first gear and we have fifth, fifth gear. We don't have the in-betweens. We either ah, just ignore it. If people bother you, just, just ignore them. They don't believe, just, just ignore it. And you often hear that if, if you ever try to apologize to someone because you've actually done something wrong, what's the gut response you typically hear? Ah, it's okay. Oh, okay. Then I don't know why I was apologizing. If it's okay, no problem, right? They don't want to deal with it. Or on the extreme, our culture is everything about stand up for your rights. If someone's wronged you, you write it. You, you stand up for your rights. You're entitled to those things. Neither one of those are good for relationships, are they? Can you imagine if you called out people, everyone in your life for every issue, you'd have no relationships, right? Without patience, without the ability to endure relational slights, misunderstandings, personality differences, relationships become really hard. They get afraid and they fracture and they break down. James says we, we exercise patience relationally. We forbear with one another. We don't stand up for our rights or who is right in this situation. First Peter 4 eight says that love covers a multitude of sins. Proverbs 10.12 says hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. You've been around people who are so easily offended. Boy, it's hard to have relationships, isn't it? Hey, you look good in that outfit. Are you saying I don't normally look good? No, no, I just, I just, meant, I just meant, you know, that I just want to give you a compliment. Yeah, because you normally don't give me compliments. No, I just, you know, I mean, it's just, are you kidding me? You can't have relationships when that kind of prickliness is there, that irritability, that grumbling, that complaining is there. James says, when you have patience with God, when you understand patience and suffering, you can have patience with one another too. So, lastly, let's ask this question. So, we answered, what is patience? Patience is, is a graciousness and steadiness in, in the face of delayed gratification. How do we exercise patience? We talk about three ways we do that. Now, maybe the most important, how do we develop patience? How do we grow in patience? Let me get a couple of suggestions from our passage from this morning and last week as well. Number one, reorient your perspective on reality. Get a reality check. History, friends, is coming to an end, let alone our own lives, but history is coming to an end. There is a day of the Lord that is quickly approaching. Now, now you might say, yeah, yeah, but when's that been going on? Well, haven't we been saying that for thousands of years? You sound like the people in the book of Peter. Right? Is it Second Peter? They said, where's the day of the Lord? This has been saying forever since our forefathers' day, and it's never come. Peter says, you just misunderstand. God is not uh, slow. God is just patient, and he's waiting for people to turn from their foolishness and come to him. Friends, the time between Jesus' first coming and his next coming it's like the snooze feature on God's alarm clock. You guys know that experience, right? Ah, snooze. Okay, and then it turns on again. And you're like, whoa, I thought it was snooze. It's the same thing. 
It just seems longer to us because, well, we're like mayflies in the course of history. A mayfly lives for 24 hours, does not have a good sense of perspective, does it? We need to reorient our perspective of reality. Number two, related to this first one, we need to grow in humility and trust. You recall last week, chapter 4, verses 13 to 17, James says, you don't even know what tomorrow is going to bring. How can you know anything else beyond that? So don't act like you should. And furthermore, don't carry the burden that you should. You don't know what tomorrow brings. Only God does. This family had no idea when they woke up Sunday morning that that evening they'd be told that their son had stage 4 cancer. We don't know. Two weeks ago, we talked about the Las Vegas shootings. No one knows people knew. We don't know. Stop acting like we do. Recognize the frailty of life and have the ability to entrust those to God. 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your cares upon Him. Why? Because He cares for you. Right? So cultivate humility and trust. And then third and finally, learn to see the redemptive power of struggle and suffering. This is what Paul says in Romans 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Notice Paul does not say we rejoice for our sufferings. That's really important because that's not what we're being. I don't want you to hear that that's what we're saying, that that's what Scripture says, that we rejoice for our sufferings as if we're some masochist. Oh, yeah, I love sufferings and tribulation. I just love, bring it on. That's not what's being said. But Paul did say rejoice in them because in this fallen world, we will have them. We can rejoice in them because we know that they are producing something in us we might not perceive at the moment. Somerset Mogman, he's a, uh, an English writer. He once wrote a story about a janitor in St. Peter's uh, Church in London. And one day, the young vicar who took residence realized that this janitor was illiterate and he had him fired for his illiteracy. Jobless, this man went around and pulled together all the meager savings he had and invested in a little tiny tobacco shop. He prospered there. And with the savings he got from that, he purchased another tobacco shop and yet another and another. And soon, he was worth hundreds of thousands of pounds. And his banker said to him one day, man, you've done great for an illiterate. What could you do if you could read and write? He said, I'd be the janitor at St. Peter's Church in Neville Square. <laughs> That's what would happen. How do we develop this patience? Lastly, probably the most importantly, uh, is Hebrews chapter 12. I want, I want you to go to Hebrews chapter 12 because I don't have a slide up there for it. Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verses 1 and 2. The writer writes this, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, he's referring to chapter 11. All those men, all the prophets, he's referring to them. That's the the cloud of witnesses. Let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. And let us run with, there's that word, hupomeno, endurance, the race that is set before us. How do we do that? How do we run with this endurance? He answers it in verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured, it's the same word, endured the cross, despising the shame. How do do we grow and develop endurance in our remembering, remembering what suffering does? We also remember 
the patience that was shown for us and the patience shown to us in Christ. How do we have this patience? Number one, we look to the example of Jesus who was patient on our behalf. According to Mark's gospel, when they were punching him time and time again, and he took it. He was patient with other people's slights. He was patient with God when he said in the garden, I don't want to do this. I really don't. If there's another way, but not my will, your will be done. He was patient with God. And when they put him on the cross, he was patient with his suffering. He said, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Why was he so patient? Hebrews 2 tells us the reason he was patient is for the joy that was set before him. That's you. That's me. That's what he was patient for. He was so patient for us that because of his patience, the Father can be forever patient with all of us. And he can absorb our sin and be patient with us. And the writer says, that's how we grow in patience. By looking to Jesus and the patience he displayed on our behalf so that there be patience given to us in Christ forever and ever. The choice we have, friends, is we can either go down because you're always going to be at Home Depot or Walmart or you're always going to be driving in a parking lot. There's always going to be situations where you can be tempted to go down the road of impatience, which will eventually lead to irritability, complaining, and cynicism and bitterness. Or you can trust Christ, endure, knowing He's going to make it all right, and that you'll come out as gold on that day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for James and his brilliant pastoral insight and his love for his people and his love for you and love them enough to say very counter-cultural truths. They are no less counter-cultural in our age. And so, Father, help us to repent of our impatience. And there are 10,000 ways we display it. And so, Father, help us to repent in those 10,000 moments and turn towards you remembering the patience of Christ on our behalf, trusting you because of your faithfulness, and looking to that day, letting that great day shape the way we live, because it will be here quicker than we realize. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.